Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting April 8, 2016, we complete a special two-part audio feature, Black and Often Blue in the EU, complementing the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Black Lives Matter Everywhere. We'll also point out top features in the new Spring issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. The Panama Papers, the blockbuster leak of more than 11 million files from the database of a big offshore law firm. The records were obtained from an anonymous source by a German newspaper, which shared them with a variety of journalism organizations. And as you've heard, one of them was World Policy Journal, a huge coup. They showed the many ways in which the super-rich can hide their money in secretive offshore tax regimes. So far, no less than a dozen world leaders have been snared, including Russia's Vladimir Putin. But the issue of tax avoidance is more than just greedy individuals. Corporations do whatever they can to dodge the tax man as well. President Obama spoke of it this week at the White House. We've had another reminder uh, in this big dump of data coming out of Panama that tax avoidance is a big global problem. It's not unique to other countries because, frankly, there are folks here in America who are taking advantage of the same stuff. A lot of it's legal, but that's exactly the problem. It's not that they're breaking the laws, it's that the laws are so poorly designed that they allow people, if they've got enough lawyers and enough accountants, to wiggle out of responsibilities that ordinary citizens uh, are having to abide by. Of course, in practical terms, this means that countries often have capital shortfalls that hurt investment in things like schools and infrastructure. The question then, if it's so easy to hide assets offshore, just how effective are things like American sanctions against countries like Iran? Well, we know the sanctions uh, regime is strong because Iran wouldn't have, for example, cut a deal to end their nuclear program in the absence of strong sanctions enforcement. Uh, but there is no doubt that the problem of global tax avoidance generally is a huge problem. It's been brought up in G7 meetings. It's been brought up in G20 meetings. There has been some progress made in coordinating between tax authorities of different countries so that we can uh, make sure that we're catching some of the most egregious examples. Uh, but as I said before, one of the big problems that we have, Michael, is that a lot of this stuff is legal, not illegal. President Obama speaking to us earlier this week. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now part two of Black and Often Blue in the EU. Photojournalist Amasa Reyes speaks with German citizens of African descent about their varying experiences in that largely white and once most racially conscious nation. I'm Damaso Reyes, a journalist who has been documenting the changing face of Europe for the past decade. To bring a global dimension to Black History Month, I offer this documentary, Germany and Poland's Black History, which examines the lives of citizens of color in the two parts of once divided Germany, as well as Poland. 
We begin in the bustling, prosperous former West Germany. Who am I? It seems like a simple enough question, but it is one that thousands of Germans of African descent have to ask themselves every day. In a country that defines identity with a great deal of precision, those who fall outside the norm find themselves trapped in a kind of limbo, neither here nor there. But how did we get here? Let's take a moment to step back in time to Germany just after the Second World War. The country was broken by years of bitter fighting, occupied and then divided between America and its allies, struggling to come to terms with what it had done and what had happened to it as a society. Into this breach come hundreds of thousands of American GIs, thousands of them African-Americans, mostly from the Deep South. Many of these young men, barred from combat units by segregation, found homes in supply units. In a country where food was in short supply, not only were these soldiers exotic, they held the keys, if not to the kingdom, certainly to survival. Like many of their fellow white soldiers, black troops made connections with German women. Soon thereafter, children began to be born and West German society struggled with what to do with them. Professor Maria Hohen, a German scholar at Vassar College who has studied the struggles of black GIs and their offspring in Germany, explained the challenges these children faced using an example of how one child welfare office labeled them. They were always identify them as black occupation children, right, or Mischlingskinder, right, mixed race children. I found one document that really, really stunned me. They used the category that was Amerikaner Kinder, Franzosen Kinder, and Neger Kinder, meaning American children, French children, and Negro children, which indicated to me that their race actually trumps the difference between the French and the American nationality of the father. In this immediate post-war period, there were over 90,000 babies born of American soldiers, and about maybe 3,000, 3,500 of them were African-American. But what is interesting is that almost the whole focus of the debate on occupation children was on those black children. While the children of white soldiers were accepted, Germans struggled with the idea that a child born of mixed-race parentage could be one of them. But where did this idea of tying race with nationality come from? Dr. Tiffany Florville of the University of New Mexico told me, the general consensus is that Germans are white, and this culture of Germanness is very much tied to this notion of Germany being monoracial. In 1871, you have this interesting dynamic that develops with um, Bismarck, in which he tries to create this notion of Germany that's extremely insular, and it doesn't necessarily acknowledge diversity within its borders. And within that model, Germans are white. There's not a sense of sort of ethnic diversity, even though ethnic diversity resided within the boundaries of Germany. You see a discussion about who is German with regards to the German colonies. In 1912, legislating what Germanness meant. And this was also pertaining to German-African relations in their territories and who should have access to that Germanness. If German women were with African men, they would lose their citizenship. If German men had relationships with African women, there was sort of a slippery slope of if their offspring could have truly obtained access to this German national identity. During the post-war era, thousands of children were born to black soldiers and white German mothers. While their nationality was not in question, their identity very much was. While the ideas of the Nazi regime were discarded by any German who wanted a place in post-war society, 
The tying of race and identity which preceded Hitler outlived him as well. By the 1980s, a second post-war Afro-German generation began to come of age, and as their numbers grew, they began to discover and connect with one another. Ironically, it was an African-American queer woman, Audre Lorde, who was instrumental in sparking the rise in Afro-German consciousness. Teaching a class in Berlin in the 1980s, she brought her experience in the American black power movement to Germany and challenged her students to change how they saw themselves and how German society had defined them. One of those students was Katharina Ogentur, now in her 60s, who I spoke with at her nonprofit community center in Berlin. She was a very big figure for us, and it was amazing to have her as a teacher. I got to know her, and after some time, they asked me and my AIM if we would be ready to do a book with Audre Lorde. She said, introduce yourselves to each other and to the world. That was a pretty big challenge, but then I felt here was my chance to do something. Farbebekennen, showing our colors became a foundational text in the Afro-German movement. For the first time, Germans of African descent were defining themselves instead of being defined by their fellow countrymen. For the community, I think one important aspect of the book was that we created these new terms, and we figured out that Afro-German would be a good term. So when we had the first meetings in the Afro-German movement, quickly it became clear that some people said, oh, Afro-German sounds to me like Africa, and that's too far away because I'm looking to America, because my father is from, from America. So they suggested black would be a good term, and we then had a common decision that we would call ourselves black German or Afro-German. The struggle of finding a sense of self when the world around you tries to define you in a way that runs counter to how you feel causes a type of quiet trauma that is easy to dismiss if you've never experienced it. Thomas Hurst was born to a white mother in the 1960s who had a brief affair with an African student. Like many of his generation, Thomas was marked by the experience of growing up in a Germany that didn't recognize him as one of their own. We met on a gray summer day at a bar in the heart of Berlin. I was confused about myself, who I am, what is a good way to explain to other people that I don't know where my father came from. When you are young, you can't understand that you identify yourself as a German, nothing else. And other people, not always bad, trying to identify or to project some other identities towards you just because of your skin color. So there was a confusion in myself why people believe that I'm not a real German. For Thomas and many other Afro-Germans, this constant defense of one's own self-image left lasting scars. For most of the white German people, there is no way to be German when you are not white. That is still the general interpretation of German. You never know if you can go through the day without any racism. If you grew up as a black German in a white family and you are the only black one and you don't have any black people who belongs to you, there might be some post-traumatic stress. For Tanya Herring, whose grandfather was a black GI and whose father was born in Germany, her family has had a multi-generational struggle for acceptance. 
a tailor and fashion designer based in the central German city of Gießen, just outside of Frankfurt. The 46-year-old had no connections to other black Germans growing up in her small village. Without other Afro-Germans around her, and often made to feel apart by German society, she finds herself a stranger in a strange land. I would say I'm nationless. The black don't really accept you because you're too light, and the white people say, no, you're too dark for us. You always feel some kind of lonely. I believe in God that tells you I'm never alone, but you know, you really feel lonely. That's what I would say. It was in part out of this sense of isolation that a group of black Germans started the Initiative of Black People in Germany, known by its initials in German as the ISD, in 1985. Similar in some ways to the NAACP, the organization works to protect and promote the interests of black people in Germany, but also serves as a way for people of color, often fragmented and isolated, to connect to one another. At the ISD offices in Berlin, I meet with 53-year-old Tahir Della, who is a board member of the organization. The son of an African-American man and a German mother from Leipzig, Tahir grew up in the conservative southern city of Munich. In that time and place, he tells me that black people were not seen as normal, and it was the book that Katharina Ogentor co-authored, Showing Our Colors, that helped Tahir realize that he wasn't alone. I started reading this book and that really opened my eyes that, uh, of course, there is a community here in Germany, there are black people here in Germany, and they have developed their own perspectives. So I get very fast in touch with these sisters here in Berlin and Frankfurt and Hamburg, and then we started a local group in Munich. While Germany is, in many ways, a modern and progressive European nation, Tahir feels that the work of the ISD is still incredibly important. And that's a problem here in general in Germany, that racism is still a taboo, it's still not being named as racism. I would say from my perspective, the society is in a way dealing with the Holocaust in the proper form, but at the same time that means that they think that after they did that, it's enough dealing with the issue of racism. And of course it is not enough, because racism against black people is totally different from the experience of the Jewish community um, before '45. The children of Tahir's generation were born into a nation and experienced a radical redefinition of itself during their early childhood when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and reunification followed the next year. 33-year-old Melody Makeda grew up during that transformation in West Berlin in the 1980s, before and after reunification. The daughter of a German mother and a black U.S. serviceman, she described a city that was dominated by an American presence even as she had little contact with it. She recently moved back to Berlin after several years in the United States and works with a local nonprofit, Each One Teach One, which provides youth of color in the city a safe place to connect with one another and learn about their heritage, which is something she lacked. It was rough being a black child in Germany, but had an added quality for me when I started puberty because I increasingly felt that there was no place for me. You know, I didn't see any models. I didn't see any black adults. There was no representation, so I was like, where is my place? How does it make you feel that the place in which you grew up is not willing to accept you as part of itself? Horrible. I think it's one of the biggest sources of pain for me in my life. Her struggles with racism were so difficult that Melody left Germany during her college years and went to the U.S. where she attended the City University of New York. And while she struggled with her Germanness, she also reveled in the diversity that she was surrounded by. After graduate school, she decided to return to Berlin. I wanted to come back and address some of the things that I'd experienced, but now I'm realizing that it has also a little bit to do with confronting that trauma. 
For Malik Herring, the 18-year-old son of Tanya, that sense of displacement is very strong. Born well after reunification, a young musician whose father is African-American and mother is biracial describes an in-betweenness echoed by many others. For example, I'm going to America in the summer holidays. I don't feel like home there because my whole life I lived in Germany and when I'm here I don't feel home because of the racism and so for myself I don't really got a home where I say that's my country, that's my nation. For Germany it don't matter if you're born here in Germany or live like for 20 years here when you're not blonde and blue-eyed they don't care. While Germany is increasingly ethnically diverse with a large Turkish-German population and people from throughout the European Union coming to find a better life there, for some black Germans, the change in German society is like the sound of distant thunder, which could signal welcome rain for their parched land. I don't really think that it's going to change maybe when the next German consulate is black. <laughs> The German Democratic Republic, or East Germany as most of us knew it, was supposed to be a workers' paradise. Built from the ashes of Hitler's fascist regime, the DDR was an ideological showcase of solidarity for workers around the world to admire. The reality, of course, was very different, but the need to promote the communist message manifested itself in many different ways, including scholarships for students from the developing world. In the DDR, it was these young pioneers who started coming in the 1960s and 70s that would in large part form the nucleus of the black East German population. West Germany would also begin to offer these scholarships as well. Vassar College professor Maria Owen tells us more. Children of color born in the GDR, it's just a very different milieu. It is mostly children of African students versus, of course, in the West, in the initial period, it was mostly um, occupation soldiers. So what is interesting about that group of students is that both of them are born in Germany as part of the Cold War competition to bring students of color from Africa to Germany as part of Entwicklungshilfe, you know, developmental aid where each side could show that our system is better. In East Germany, the children of these students tended to be raised in the urban environments of their parents' university settings, while in the West, many biracial children found themselves isolated, growing up in small villages. Like in other Warsaw Pact nations, much lip service was paid to the idea of international solidarity, and racism was officially not tolerated. University of New Mexico's professor Tiffany Florville explains. You see this sense of we are the true heirs of anti-fascist movement. It's also tied to the sense of finding solidarity and forging solidarity with African-American civil rights leaders and activists in which there was this larger concerted effort to claim that East Germany is not a racist space. 49-year-old Aminata Ceci Schleher grew up in the East German city of Leipzig. Her parents met in the late 1950s when her father, who was from Guinea, was learning German in Leipzig before he began his studies. Aminata was just four years old when her father was forced, as many students were, to leave after he completed his studies, leaving her mother to raise her as a single parent. I was a kind of bastard. I was a child of an unmarried couple. Besides that, I think I had a kind of normal East German growing up. Sometimes I felt something without being aware of what it was exactly. I thought it depended on my color somehow, but because it was a socialist or a kind of communist country and it was said everybody is treated equal and there is no racism and there is no discrimination at all, 
it was more or less not not allowed to talk about this kind of feelings. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, black Germans in the East were more able to connect with their brothers and sisters in the West, who had already begun to form a black consciousness movement. The initiative of black people in Germany, or ESD as it is called here, had already been in existence for five years when reunification happened. For Aminata and others, the chance to connect with other Germans who embraced their blackness was crucial. To meet so many black people helped me to find out who I am and to find kind of my identity. After the wall came down, a group from the ESD very fast came to Leipzig to meet us and they brought Farbe Beken, showing our colors. They brought this book and it was like an awakening for us to see or to read how many people have the same experiences as we have and to see it's already written down in a book. So it's more public than we ever thought we could be as a minority in Eastern Germany and in Germany. It's a paradox for many Germans of color that they face less open racism during the more oppressive regime of the DDR. But it was exactly the erosion of that social control that allowed people to feel the freedom to express themselves, even in ways that were hostile to their fellow citizens. Daniel Bartel is a psychologist and counselor who works at the Anti-Discrimination Bureau, a nonprofit in Leipzig. Founded 10 years ago, the organization offers assistance to those who face discrimination and also has taken a leading role in highlighting the need for German society to face up to the idea that racism, especially on an institutional level, does indeed exist. The response from the government has fallen short of what Daniel feels is needed to combat the problem. On the governmental level, the existence of structural racism or institutional racism has not happened yet. The issue is neglected. Racism is still regarded as a problem of the far right. There's an institutional problem, there's institutional racism that we need to confront. Politics fail to address this problem. A couple of years ago, our office published a report that was speaking about institutionalized racism. And the Saxonian government then investigated us because they thought we might be extremists because we used this concept talking about institutionalized racism as being problematic and being outside a democratic realm says something. The other issue, the topic of racial profiling by the police forces. A couple of years ago, the government was asked whether this is a problem in Germany. And the official statement by the German government was, yeah, we heard about racial profiling. That's something that happens in the U.S. as far as we know. This does not happen in Germany. It's not a problem, not a reality in Germany, because we have the Grundgesetz, and this would be illegal. So... Following this logic, um, there would be no theft, no murder in Germany, because all of that is illegal too. If you don't talk about it, if you don't want to see it, it's not there. Born to a Congolese father who came to East Germany to study journalism and a white German mother, 29-year-old Sarah Mawani grew up in Leipzig in the 1980s and 90s. We met at a cafe in Berlin where she now lives, and she describes what it was like to grow up in a city where she didn't feel safe, and even today has concerns. In our neighborhood, the people who see only my mother, my white mother, alone, they uh, say hello to her, and then they saw that she's with my father and me, and then they started to spit when they saw her. 
When you go out on the street on daytime or evening in some parts of the city, yeah, you can get hunted and experience physical violence. And a lot of times people who attacked me uh, said to me that I can be lucky that I'm a girl because if I would be a black man, they would kill me. In Berlin, I have a bigger cycle where I can move. In when I'm in Leipzig to visit my family, I just go straight from the main station to my home, and then I stay there. For Sarah and many like her, the fear which has become a constant element of her life has forced her to consider whether or not she will stay in Germany at all. There are times I'm really thinking about leaving. For example, when I'm in London, you see so many people who are black and have relationships with white persons and then have children together. It's really more normalized. And here I'm feeling it's so complicated. 21-year-old university student Eva Said grew up in the small East German city of Halle after reunification. Her father, an Ethiopian student who came to Germany through an exchange program, separated from her mother when she was just two and a half, leaving her feeling out of touch with that part of her heritage. I asked her what it was like growing up in East Germany after reunification. To be honest, it was really bad. Where I grew up, there weren't any children like me. Like I maybe saw once or twice in my whole childhood someone. It wasn't just that there weren't any black people or any mixed people, but also people who had really a lot of negative reactions towards me. There was a lot of racism. Some was subtle and some was not so subtle, but very in your face. And my mother never really talked about it with me, so I was on my own. Actually, I always wanted to be like everybody else. It was really a hard time. I always wished that I was just looking like the rest of my family. One incident, I remember I was in a city near this city, it was a bit smaller, and I was celebrating my grandpa's birthday. And I walked out on the street with my cousin, who is fully German, and we were just laughing, and this one woman was looking angrily at me, and then we walked back and came across her again, and I laughed again, and she was like, what are you laughing at? Go back where you came from. Just because you're laughing or because you look at somebody, they get really angry. And then I started to never look at someone and always look away because I was afraid that they're going to attack me. So, yeah, people here, they're bad. I think it's really different when you grew up in Eastern and Western Germany, definitely. Eva's friend Indela Anba, who grew up in Cologne in West Germany in a more supportive environment, was shocked by her experiences when she moved to Leipzig three years ago to attend university. Even in Cologne, this question of identity was never a, a struggle for me. I didn't th even thought about it. Then I moved here and... I became more conscious about me, about uh, how people see me and how it affects me. I had the feeling I got treated different. I started directly making the connection that I was treated rudely because they think I'm not coming from here. In the beginning, I wanted to go. Actually, I wanted to leave Leipzig. Suddenly I had this consciousness when I walk in a room that I am the only person with multicultural backgrounds. I think this consciousness came because I was actually the only person with a different background in the room. But then there were other encounters that people insulted me to go back to where I belong. I think often it was when I left my safe space, my friends, and suddenly I was in the public space in Leipzig. I felt insecure and that was a feeling that I never had before. What is the impact of growing up in a place that sees you outside of itself? Eva gave me one answer. 
For me, it means not having a home, not having a native country, really. You know, everybody should have some place they can identify with and they feel safe and they feel like they're in a community. And if you don't have that, you're always missing some crucial part of your identity, I guess. I don't know, I think my place in Germany is not really existent if you look at public opinion because they're only foreigners and they're German-Germans. So I think I don't really have a place. Those who choose to remain face an uphill struggle to change German society. 36-year-old artist Stephanie Laiha Okongo was born in East Berlin to Namibian freedom fighters who fled during that country's war of independence. She's committed to staying and using her life and work to change the world around her. I found islands where I can be, and on these islands I'm okay. I figure out if I'm strong, then I can be everywhere and can do everything. So I um, figure out to work on it that the islands become bigger and bigger. As a writer and poet and singer and photographer and activist, I'm doing it to make a change in someone's life and to shame the people who are part of this majority society and that's what I have to do for the rest of my life because I don't want to die without doing anything to be a part of changing this world. I'm Damaso Reyes, and this has been Germany and Poland's Black History. This documentary was made possible by a grant from the International Center for Journalists, and parts of this program were originally aired on Here and There with Dave Marish on KSFR-FM in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and at ksfr.org, where you can access the complete library of more than 200 other Here and There programs. Photojournalist Damaso Reyes is a senior fellow of the World Policy Institute, Born and raised in Brooklyn, he began his career as a stringer for New York's Amsterdam News. Since then, his images and articles from around the world have appeared in publications including the Wall Street Journal, the San Francisco Chronicle, Der Spiegel, and World Policy Journal. Featured in the WPJ Spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French band news, race and revolution in Cuba, plus the unintended consequences of India's war on sex selection. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on black as a country, building racial solidarity across international borders. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yafa Frederick, Podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>